Hello and welcome to Dangerous Exponents, a coronavirus podcast. This is our 10th episode. My name is Jeff Sackman, your host, and with me is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Dangerous Exponents, like I said, is our COVID-19 podcast, and you can find all of our previous episodes at DangerousExponents.com. The usual caveat is that we are not experts in the sense that we are not epidemiologists, we are not physicians, we are not public health officials of any kind. However, we are reasonably smart people with a background in data journalism and related things. So we hope to bring our analytic skills to um, to an expository approach of some of these really important issues as the pandemic continues. So for today's episode, we want to focus on masks. Uh, masks have been in the news since the very beginning of the pandemic. They've been a, a, an integral part of billions of people's lives for nearly a year now, and they continue to be in the news as we discuss whether to wear masks post-vaccine, whether to double mask, whether to wear certain kinds of masks instead of others, whether to uh, make it a mandate or just a su suggestion. I could go on and on and on and, and tease every two-minute segment of our program. I won't do that, but you get an idea of, of how crucial this is for something that really can seem mundane. So uh, I want to peel back the, the the mundane surface a little bit and get into to some of these issues. And let's let's jump right in with something that maybe it doesn't seem that introductory, but I think is is really key to the discussion, which goes back to the theme of our last episode, which was trade-offs. I mean, every single decision we make related to the pandemic, and I'm saying we in the general population, public health sense, every single decision has a trade-off. And uh, Many of the things you read about masks describe it as as extremely low cost. One source I read even described it as as free, which of course immediately sets my my sensors on uh, warning me on high. But it seems like it's very low cost compared to things like locking down all of society, pe forcing people to stay at home, um, developing vaccines and distributing them around the world. Masks are cheap, so. Carl, is is that way of looking at things missing something? Like, uh, is it a more severe trade-off than is being described? Or are masks really this inexpensive of, uh, of a public health move to make? Clearly, there is some cost to making high-quality masks, the kinds of masks that people who are working in high-risk settings, especially, let's say, hospitals with COVID patients, are, are using. There's, there's got to be a high cost to that because we've known since the start of the pandemic that those are the masks that, if they were free, everyone should be using, and still most people aren't, and in fact, we're still being advised as, as civilians to, to not use them because of potential shortages. So there's some cost to the really high quality mass in terms of production, distribution. Beyond that, I can think of lots of little costs and, and I can list them if we want to get nitty gritty. I, I think if there are really big costs we're not calculating, they are somehow social, psychological, things that we can't measure in dollars and maybe can't measure immediately. I, I've read some suggestion that for children, their psychological effects maybe yet another way that children are being set back by the pandemic, that not being able to see each other's faces and adults' faces are, are setting them back in terms of development. That, that makes some sense to me. Uh, in general, not being able to see other people's faces is probably 
probably possibly a way to reduce trust, although I would think that would be made up for by the sense of community and trust around seeing other people taking measures to protect you as much as or more than themselves. Otherwise, yeah, it's really not obvious. I mean, I guess if we were really strict about masking or when out of our homes, then certain kinds of businesses would just cease to be able to do business the way they had. Like we carve out an exception for masks for people to, to eat at restaurants, whether it's it's outdoors or at times indoors. And if, if we weren't allowing that, then then that would be an even bigger hit to that industry. So there might be some small economic costs like that. But my, my hunch is that the big costs are in production and distribution of the best masks and also in in something that is not easily measured financially. I mean, one of those things that's not easily measured financially is some sense of, of group belonging, which always... Uh, always has the tendency to get messy that in the U S especially the people who aren't wearing masks have almost turned it into a political crusade. Maybe not even almost, it has become a sort of political crusade. Um, it, you stand for something when you don't wear a mask and that trickles down to the the population in some places where you stand out as, as a weirdo or maybe having the wrong affiliation. If, if you do wear a mask and this is a really big problem. I mean, it, it, we can get into the the science or lack thereof r- regarding masks in a little bit. But if we accept for the moment that having everyone wear masks in public has a beneficial public health benefit and the cost isn't that great, which I, I mean, I think are fairly well accepted assumptions, then what's going on with these people who refuse to wear masks? Like, it, it, Is there cost benefit analysis? different in some defensible way? I mean, are they just, are they just being difficult? Are they just like Donald Trump too much? Like to, to read the, to read a lot of the media, it, it, it sounds like these people are just irrational. And to some extent, I also see things that way, but I mean, is there, is there any other way of looking at this? Is there some way in which they could be calculating the costs differently that might be defensible? I've been trying really hard to be empathetic with people who either are completely anti-mask to the extent that they're against people who are wearing them, which which is a sizable contingent of the country, although fortunately for me, not not where I live, and and also for people who are just inconsistent in their use and I, trying to like make the best case in their defense. First, you've got very inconsistent messaging throughout this this pandemic about masks, and I think we can talk more about that. But but that can be a recipe for people latching on to the messaging that is most uh, permissive about masks. And also, sometimes a stance with masks from the government and public health point of view that seems more about you know rules and punishment, which can then lead people to only follow the rules when they're actually enforced and not think in terms of the the low cost nature of wearing them and, and the benefits to the community, but more in terms of, you know, personal um, culpability. And there is a lot, there is also a lot of misinformation that suggests masks are not effective and also that they're potentially dangerous for a wide range of people, not not just the kind of narrow group of people that 
might actually um, be in danger from the effect on breathing, let's say. So I guess like if we accept some of the things that a wide swath of the country believe around QAnon, around the election, um, something like masks, where we don't really have great data, certainly not granular data around the effectiveness of very specific kinds of masks worn in very specific ways and contexts, there's definitely room for for some misinformation to grow in certain communities. And then maybe the last thing, which I have trouble empathizing with, but certainly see in segments of society, is a sort of rebellion against virtue signaling, that to the extent that masks are seen as a way to show, I care about my neighbors, I care about my community, I care about saving lives, that for the group of people who seems to think the worst thing that could happen to anyone is being judged as morally inferior, uh, it is it is an outrage and outraging to, to, to see other people doing that and, and something you very much want to separate yourself from and, and go to war against. I'm glad you mentioned the, the virtue signaling. I mean, it, it's, it's a very secondary issue compared to some of the other things we're talking about, but worth touching on for a moment, which is, I mean, there is a... a there is a virtue signaling aspect to this, and it seems like these days there's a virtue signaling aspect to almost everything. But I was just thinking about that. I noticed yesterday scrolling down my my Twitter feed that an awful lot of people's Twitter profile photos have them in masks, which I mean, if that's not virtue signaling, I don't know what is. Maybe that's all that Twitter is, and maybe that's beside the point. But in online is the one area where you definitely don't need to be wearing a mask. I mean, to the extent that you can be yourself online, you you, you don't have to. To, to show that sort of thing or hide that sort of thing. Uh, so, I mean, there, there definitely is a segment of the population that that is signaling to each other in that regard. And, and I can understand wanting to not want to align yourself with those people. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not really a bear, but I, but I understand. So, I mean, it, it's maybe that's the, that's a 1% of a valid argument. It's probably not more than that, but it is, it is something. So I, think that my Twitter profile picture is of me in a mask and it was meant at the time I put it up and have not really thought about it until you just threw it under the bus so to speak I think it was meant at the time as kind of exactly that joke that I am online and of course I don't need it I think it's a picture of me with a mask and a headset so I'm like clearly wearing it in my home and and really don't need it um but it, but it is an interesting like virtue signaling has become such a broad term that I think it encompasses attempts by people to genuinely, like, how do you model good behavior without virtue signaling? Is everything that is meant, as, at least secondarily, as, as a way to, to encourage other people to do something that is, in fact, good for society, bad because we can call it virtue signaling. For, for instance, you know, we've we talked about vaccines in, in recent episodes. I don't think we've talked much about kind of the vaccine selfie phenomenon, which many of the, uh, the first recipients uh, who are medical workers were posting as a way to show, hey, I, I know medicine and I trust the vaccine and I'm really excited to get the vaccine. You know, maybe that's virtue signaling to show you're pro-vaccine and also you're you're in that group because you work in a field that is trying to keep people healthy. But I also see the public health benefits. So I'm wondering how to how to separate those. Well, there's an easy answer to your question. I mean, it's a valid point that a lot of the things that we call virtue signaling have 
of value beyond sort of throwing away the whole category. But in so technically, yes, a, sel- a vaccine selfie is virtue signaling in the literal sense, but it does have the value that you mentioned. I mean, it, it probably does have public health value, especially when it's celebrities with a lot of a, a big reach doing it. Um, but that's just it. When you when you post a picture of yourself indoors wearing a mask, I understand that some of that you meant that as a joke, a lot of people are showing off their cool mask or I, there's a lot of reasons to do it other than virtue signaling, but showing showing the world that the world ought to wear masks when you're inside at your laptop. I mean, that's uh, there's no setting an example there. If, unless the example is here's a cool mask you can wear. I mean, it seems like that there's a pretty clear separation between the vaccine selfie and the, the indoor mask selfie and that the indoor mask selfie doesn't have a, a public health purpose. Um, but I, I said it was a secondary issue and we've already given it a couple minutes. So let's let's go back up the, the ladder a little bit to more important issues. And you mentioned, Carl, that there are anti-mask studies out there um, and uh, I think you might have grouped that in with some misinformation. There's definitely misinformation out there. Um, there are definitely anti-mask claims out there that fall into that category. There are, on the other hand, some studies, not all studies by, by any stretch, but there are studies that have been done that don't show much of an effect. I mean, even We could even say a null effect on masks. There's a pretty notable study a few months ago that came from Denmark that I mean, people attacked it. Some of them, some people attacked the paper on its merits. Some people attacked it because it wasn't the message that the public ought to be hearing. But it was a peer-reviewed study. It did appear in the Lancet, and it said that there wasn't much of an effect from wearing masks at the community level. I mean, you've said already, Carl, a couple of times that the, the science on this isn't solid. We, we don't have as much data as we would like. Uh, but where where do you think we stand vis-a-vis knowing the effectiveness of masks? I mean, what's the how how can we reconcile the fact that it seems like we're all science sciencey pro mask but there are these studies that show a null effect yeah i think it's a combination of there are enough studies that it's not that surprising some would show a null effect also they're all kind of studying different things in different ways including different masks or just sort of naturally whichever mask people are wearing in a certain community and i also think we've botched the the messaging and and also the the spending on actual masks to make sure that people are wearing the best possible masks in the best possible way at the right times. So I think that um, we don't really know how effective masks can be. We're, we're either affecting sort of lab setting. We, we have some data on lab settings or on past respiratory illness outbreaks or kind of whatever the community is doing in a given time. And some studies like the study of of germany and and comparing different starting points for mask mandates still show a pretty clear effect and some studies show less of an effect i think there have been comparative effects of places in the u.s that seem to show a pretty clear effect as well um i think one of the biggest factors is even on just the basic level of how many people are wearing masks how often we don't really have good data on that we 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 use things externally 
like mandates, but they're so rarely enforced with, with any thoroughness. So it's really hard to 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 pinpoint kind of the the timing of of mask adoption. So I think the overall body of evidence is is pretty clear, but maybe it is overstating things to say it's it's outright misinformation to uh, to question the effectiveness of masks with COVID. And there's there's always so many confounding variables. I mean, that's the problem with with any kind of community level study. And you mentioned the studies that use different starting points for mask mandates, which those do seem to be the best studies and they do seem to have the the clearest findings. But it, I'm thinking back to one of the conversations we had in an earlier episode about super spreader events. And we talked a lot about the Sturgis motorcycle rally and some of the studies that were done about the the effect of the rally on community spread of the virus. And what we concluded there was that it, it, the effect wasn't that clear because the sort of places that sent a lot of people to the Sturgis motorcycle rally were the sort of places that weren't doing other things to be particularly safe. And you got to wonder if a place a place that has a mask mandate sooner than another place is probably doing other things better as well. Uh, I mean, you, you can never have, have a pure natural experiment with, with this kind of thing because the, these decisions all go hand in hand. So and as you point out, Carl, not only do you have the issue that I mentioned with confounding variables that I haven't read those entire papers, so they might have been discussed in the papers, but probably there are confounding variables beyond what they dug into. But but yeah, it, it, a place that has a certain political mix or a certain attitude towards the virus or a certain experience of the, the virus, then a mask mandate might mean people wear masks 95% of the time, so 90% of the time, or they might have access to better masks, or they might be richer and spend the money to have better masks or replace them more regularly or 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 the list goes on and on we can dream up confounding variables all day long and probably fill our our whole episode with that um but yeah it's 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 a really hard thing to study i mean it thinking about this from sort of the ground up if if there was one sort of study we could have like it's can you think of an an ideal way to approach this question that would be more convincing? I mean, is, is, is there a way to study mask usage at the community level that would shed some more light on this issue? I have some ideas. The, the New York Times did what was probably a pretty expensive study a while ago in a few different neighborhoods at major intersections where they just stood and counted how many people were wearing masks and how many were wearing them in the way you're supposed to covering your your mouth and nose and it was a great snapshot in time although i had some issues with how they did it but like if you did that repeatedly in the same place day of week time etc you could you could actually get some kind of sense of how this is evolving you'd probably want to also check some indoor locations well, and the, the technology exists to make that more automated, I think. Like there are companies that are providing artificial intelligence solutions for detecting whether people are wearing masks. So I'm sure some people are doing this. I'm sure it's happening in China. You, you can just stick a camera in some software and see what percentage of people are wearing masks or wearing masks properly among the people in some given location. Yeah, yeah. It would certainly be a more efficient way to get more data. Um, and <laughs> I guess less disturbing to people because as long as they're wearing masks, they're less identifiable. The, 
the other th unless they're unless they're wearing the same masks that they have in their social media profiles <laughs> and, and they're one of a kind which which mine and mine might be i so i think that's one way in terms of sort of separating just like general mostly cloth mask wearing with something that's more likely to work if if any government does go ahead and start sending its population and mass medical grade masks that's a point in time that you can look at like hopefully that makes a lot more people wear better masks than they did and maybe some people wear masks where they weren't before um then then you would be able to to look at before and after and see what effect there is there it's comparing different kinds of masks at this stage of the of the pandemic but that would still be incredibly useful there are some countries that I think did do that fairly early in the pandemic. So maybe it was like too early to really have the comparison you would want, but also <laughs> from the flip side of like success, probably uh, just as early as you would want it, or maybe not even as early. Another thought is there are places that have stepped up enforcement at different times. So the Wall Street Journal ran a story about India and a big decline in its number of new cases seeming to coincide with stepped up enforcement combined with messaging. So it's kind of hard to separate those. And it wasn't clear exactly when the enforcement increased, but to the extent you could identify places like that, that, that could be useful. It's just difficult because all you mentioned confounders. And I think, you know, a potential big confounder is people do respond to what they hear or know about the prevalence of uh, coronavirus and community spread in their area. So to some extent, people wearing more masks could be an indicator of, of more spread, and, and that's happening for other reasons, uh, including potentially other behavior that's, that's risky. So yeah, I don't know, what, what studies would, would you, how would you design a, a study that's, that's ethical and would help answer these questions? Well, I think the solution would, would probably have to start with a lot more use of cameras and and detecting mask wearing. I mean, if you, you know, I guess the, there are two ways you you would want to approach a question like this. One is lab studies figuring out how effective the masks really are to the extent that we understand how how the virus spreads via droplets. Uh, but the the other one is yeah, people out in the community. How often are they really wearing masks? Are they wearing them properly? What kind of masks are they wearing? And I'm guessing that sub state of the art artificial intelligence computer vision can detect that stuff i'm not exactly sure what's out there in the wild and what's being used but it seems it seems doable based on my limited knowledge of the field uh and and you could by having several of these cameras around a particular urban area let's say new york like get a sense of of whether people are wearing masks more or less what kind of masks they're using and so on and and you can figure out how that correlates to to the spread. And it wouldn't be a perfect study. And, and I, I am fascinated by the the trade off you suggest, Carl, that people are aware of how much the virus is spreading, and they'll adjust their behavior according to that. It's almost like everyone has an optimal level of uh, an optimal balance of RT versus their own personal convenience, and. Some people that level is zero and they'll just wear a mask 
or they'll stay inside as much as possible all the time. Other people, their optimal level might be 1.1, which doesn't sound that bad to them, or they don't hear about new cases popping up that much, and they really hate wearing masks, so it's it's something different. Um, I don't know how on earth you'd study that. That would be enormously complicated. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, I think I think there should probably be a lot more cameras in use, and it, it would be nice to have more of the data from China where I'm sure they are doing a lot of this stuff since the cameras were already set up and the technology was already more or, or less in place. And you mentioned with your, your comment about the, the fact that the virus has stopped spreading as fast in India with, with their messaging and enforcement of, of mask usage. Uh, it strikes me that enforcement itself is a type of messaging and sending people packets of, of masks for the household in Singapore or Taiwan and the various places that have been able to do that, that's a form of messaging. And one thing we haven't talked about yet that's really key to talk about uh, in U.S. specific is the messaging regarding masks from really close to day one. So it all, a lot of the confusion or controversy about masks in the U.S. starts with the Surgeon General saying, don't wear masks, don't go, or at least don't go out and, and buy masks unless you're doing these few specific things. They won't even help. And we now know at least part of the motivation for that was to to stop uh, or to, to try to prevent shortages, to make sure that protective equipment was available for healthcare workers and so on. But it has really contaminated the issue for almost a year now. And in, let's just start with the basics, Carl. I'm assuming you would agree that that was not the right approach to take from the beginning. I mean, what what do you think that the the Surgeon General should have said from day one, knowing that there was going to be a mask shortage for a while, but probably they have some benefit even to people who aren't on the front lines? Yeah, what you just said. I mean, I think it's surprising how long it took to come up with the message that was basically don't buy stuff that's been uh graded or there's got to be a better term than that but don't buy stuff that's that's meant for medical workers and, and is is good enough to wear all day in a hospital but do cover your face any way you can if you have to go outside i mean we were in the stage where we we're uh, being told basically to not go outside and if you go outside cover your face any way you can there, you know we, we've seen people like lift t-shirts over their noses if it comes to that it's not great but it's something and at least it gets the point across that hey this thing is is traveling in the air you don't know who's got it try to create some kind of barrier while, while not buying up these stocks and and by the way and, and the, the surgeon general doesn't have control over this part but it would be nice if the government said we're doing everything we can to ramp up production soon enough that you can also get these masks that we are saying are so good that we have to protect the scarce supply for the people who need the most for now. Um, but to, to basically tell people that masks aren't effective was so clearly misleading when, when the premise was we have to protect the supply. Like why, why does this stuff matter then? Why are we protecting it if it doesn't protect people? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think back a lot to that time and the choices I was making. And, you know, I think one of the effects was, I don't think the Surgeon General explicitly said this, but I think his message and other people's message, messages latching on to, to that message were 
that basically if you had those supplies, even if you had them from years ago for various other reasons, and you were wearing them, you were a bad person because you were hoarding these things that you didn't really need uh, and that weren't going to help you and that could save a doctor's life. And so they created a kind of weird stigma around wearing the best possible masks. And I think that, you know, we've talked about there's now a different kind of stigma, but I think that was part of what was so so weird and dangerous about the messaging and made it made it hard to to turn around it would, were officials in norway kind of following the same playbook or, or just not saying much either way about mass early on they weren't saying a lot i mean there haven't been a lot of there weren't mask mandates early on except i believe in a couple of metro areas there was none in my municipality until i want to say september or so um, so it's, it's never been a big part of the response, although it's certainly in, entrenched now. Um, it's interesting what you say, Carl, about the, the early stigma around wearing certain types of protective equipment that would have been more valuable in the hands of a doctor or a nurse, because that did create the wrong message. I mean, you, you certainly don't want to attach a stigma to someone who's doing something responsible in public. But on the other hand, there's... There's some truth to that, right? If there is a shortage of protective equipment, then we want it to be in the right hands. It's a lot more valuable for a doctor who's treating COVID patients to have a mask than for me to have a mask. Uh, and to me, that that seems pretty much logically impregnable. And and I wonder how complicated the public health messaging can be or or should have been. So I, mean, I think we agree, and most everyone else listening will agree that the the messaging was bungled by the U.S. in the beginning in a way that still has ramifications today. But it, it, there's there's this question of how transparent should they have been or how detailed have they sh- should they have been with their transparency. And to me, the fundamental question, I'm curious what you think about, Carl, is thinking still in terms of trade-offs, there's certainly benefits to transparency. I mean, one of them is that you're telling the truth the whole time and it's not going to come back and bite you like it has on this issue in the U.S. Um, But we we have we have public health officials shifting their goalposts on herd immunity. So we apparently the the targets for herd immunity that we heard about in the summer are different than they are now because the public wasn't ready to hear the real numbers, which hmm, I don't like very much. But is is there a is there a cost to transparency? We're talking about the benefits, but I mean, given how many people are not transparent, um, what are what are the costs here that we should be thinking about? Well, I think there are costs to the people in government and to the government because it it might show their kind of limited reach or poor planning or incompetence to say, yeah, we we have this situation where like the things that are on the shelf at your local pharmacy that are your right to buy, you shouldn't buy, or the things that are in your your closet that we, we can't even tell you how to donate to someone or whether they'll use them or throw them out because they don't trust them. Uh, that that's what you should do, but you've got to figure that out. You're on your own for that. But just, whatever you do, don't wear them because they're just too protective for your own for societal good for you to wear them. Um, so I, th- I think a lot of it is self-serving. It's like a way to to make it sound like it's for your own good to to do this thing that 
the country might need you to do to protect it from its its own government's failings. I I guess there are other advantages. I mean, you could you could imagine that transparency in some cases could lead to panic. And maybe at that stage we weren't really sure how people would react to things, although I think in general people reacted incredibly well in those early days overall. I mean, a lot of the things they did uh, that reduced the spread early on in the U.S. were um, spontaneous and before any any government mandate. So um, I, th- I think maybe at that stage there was less of an appreciation of how much transparency people could could handle, and that that's been one of the the lessons we've been we've been learning that that maybe the the trade offs aren't aren't as um, clear in terms of benefits of, of transparency. Yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely agree that one of the costs is the cost to the politician, him or herself. And there's, there's a lot of ass covering going on. Um, and that's not just true of the, of the pandemic. Um, and I'm, I'm also glad you highlighted the issue of, of keeping things simple that I think sometimes when public health, health officials don't tell the whole story, it's because they don't trust the public to understand the whole story. So if the goal is to get people not to hoard masks, they tell a story that they think will get people to not hoard masks. They don't explain the whole thing. They don't explain their reasoning. Uh, And I'm struck by some of the public health messaging I've seen both in Norway and, and from other European countries that it seems like getting it right isn't that complicated. Maybe I'm... Maybe I'm overstating how clear and simple it can be, but whenever I've read things that were put out by the Norwegian government, it's very straightforward. It's pretty simple. I don't think you're ever asked to read more than half a page or a page at a time. Um, I mean, there's more information there if you want it, but to communicate something like don't buy medical grade masks because we don't have enough of them, I just said it. That's it. Like the, the reasoning is simple. We want it to make them available for doctors. So don't try to buy them. Here are some alternatives. I mean, it, they're pretty simple messages. And and it seems like it, right now the U.S. is showing the cost of of not being transparent at that level with, with the confusion and, and misinformation that is still going on surrounding masks all, almost a year later. So one other issue I want to talk about, Carl, is, is something that's sort of been in the background of, of these other issues, which is the supply. Um, in the U.S. still, the the N95s are still limited to healthcare workers. There aren't enough of them to go beyond that. Um, there are other types of mask shortages that continued until fairly recently. There's concern about fake masks on the market promising to do more than they really do. Uh, it's... It, if if you were you know if you were Joe Biden or you had Joe Biden's ear right now, uh, how would you propose solving the supply issue? Spending a lot of money, and some of that money should go to research, like we described, and and really understanding for sure what works. But in the meantime, we have a pretty good idea. The messaging has been pretty consistent from the start. The, the data has not contradicted that. N95 are best if you can fit them right. Other medical grade masks, often called surgical masks, but that term seems confusing and 
probably we should figure out a better way to say what we're talking about. But those seem like second best, although maybe also hard to get the fit right. Uh, cloth masks, all sorts of details about what they should get. We should be spending more on these be- these masks that are best and then giving them to people. I mean, the vaccine is a barrier between people's uh, between people and, and infection. And we're spending a lot on that. And I think Biden is ready to spend more. And it makes sense in terms of the payoff uh, of, of curbing the, the epidemic sooner and restoring confidence. And masks are another way to do that and a way that doesn't involve, you know, freezing at, at sub-zero temperatures and getting people to get take a shot in the arm and, and, and all that. So... I, that that's the number one suggestion that that I would push is is just getting more of these uh, top quality masks out to people. Yeah, I and and I would agree with that. Um, one of the one of the issues that came up early on for people who could potentially make these masks is it wasn't clear how many would be needed. And uh, I read one interview with with someone who who ran a, a manufacturing plant that had ramped up max, mask production when the the SARS looked like it might have be, be turning into an epidemic, and they they geared up to and installed new machines and hired new people, and turned out people didn't want that many masks with the arrival of SARS. It didn't turn out to be that big of a deal compared to what we're facing now. And uh, that particular firm almost went out of business, according to the person being interviewed anyway. And that made people hesitant to make the same or to take the same leap now. And it, it going back, circling back to where we started this whole conversation, uh, masks are cheap compared to developing and, and proving out vaccines, compared to lockdowns, compared to virtually everything else we're doing. We're, I mean, we're we're seeing headlines about trillion dollar rescue packages and things that might only cost a billion or $10 billion to, to roll out are, are being ignored when they would be potentially as much value. So, I mean, I, I would have loved to see from the very beginning guaranteed purchases of billions and billions of masks so that people who had manufacturing plants that could be converted to these purposes, um, would do it. I mean, they, they would they would know there's a market regardless of how bad the pandemic turned out to be. I mean, even if it turned out to just be insurance, spending at that level is is it's really just a rounding error compared to everything else we're going through. And it's this this sort of rounding error that I, I would hope our government was more ready to embrace. Uh, and from from what I've read, there's still room to do that to to provide the money for these sort of guaranteed purchases to make sure that we have better quality masks available in larger numbers and we continue to do so. Um, I'm not sure that's something that's being discussed as much as it should be, but it, as you say, Carl, it's, it's, it's up there with vaccines in terms of stopping the, the spread of the virus. It's not as important as vaccines, but it's considerably cheaper and certainly easier and, and faster to get masks on faces than, than vaccines in arms. Yeah, and I, I don't even know for sure that it's less important than vaccines. I mean, if to to take a thought experiment, if we had done what you said early on, uh, we would potentially have spared a whole lot of life uh, lost before the vaccines arrived. We also know a lot of people are not going to uh, take the vaccine. Some people aren't 
even supposed to or allowed to at this stage. And we also might need new vaccines soon enough because either immunity wears off or there's a new variant of the virus that that is um, not protected by the vaccine. So it's it's kind of debatable. And the other thing about about masks is they they last. So uh, not only do you not have to store them sub zero, but they stay useful for years. So you can stockpile them. And unfortunately, we might need them for future outbreaks of this or the next thing. And you can also sell them to other countries pretty easily if if you end up buying more than you immediately need. So there's there's a lot to like about about making more of them. And you know, tests are the other thing that a lot of people think we've underspent on as we're spending trillions on on relief and and dealing with record unemployment and so on. Yeah, there's there's definitely been too much focus on on spending a lot of money to sort of fix the problems that were created by the lockdown rather than looking one step ahead and figuring out how to stop the next round of problems. And as you say, Carl, masks would not only have a positive effect now, but could have more positive effects down the road. Uh, and that's that's not true of sending everyone a check for $2,000. I and mean, that's that's something we'll have to revisit again in a few months and a few months after that and a few months after that until this is over. Uh, whereas spending on masks or tests are orders of magnitude, less money and probably a lot easier logistically, but maybe even more valuable and certainly as valuable, probably more valuable. So I think that that pretty much covers everything we wanted to talk about. Um, there's certainly more issues that we could touch on. Um, Carl, before we wrap up, are there other things that you wanted to mention today? Well, I, I would just quickly wanted to hear, if, if you don't mind, to whatever level of detail you feel like sharing, how you've made sense of all this since last March, like how your behavior has evolved on this. Um, I promise I won't uh, virtue signal or, or judge, but I'm just curious, like, as someone who is not an, a subject matter expert, like you always say in the intro, but is thinking analytically all the time, wh what you've been doing and whether that's changed. You mean with masks or in general? Oh, with masks. Okay. Um, I never wore a mask until there was a mask mandate in my area. Since then, I've we have disposable surgical masks that that we wear wherever we're we're asked to um in my area it, it's pretty much universal every once in a while you'll see one who isn't wearing one when they when they should be but that was one interesting thing about the public messaging from the beginning it it, it, it said that you know be aware that some people with certain health conditions won't be able to wear a mask you know i didn't explicitly say don't shame them for not doing so it just sort of said be aware sort of like the message on on new york city subways that says not all disabilities are visible uh, but I mean, I it, for me it's easy because I I work from home. I don't have a lot of reasons to to go out, uh, so I haven't been faced with a lot of tough choices. And also living in Norway, it, it's a serious issue here. But in terms of of case counts and and deaths, it's extremely minor compared to almost everywhere else in the world. So I'm very lucky in that regard. So I mean, I'm not sure I my personal situation has a lot a ton of insight except that i do live in a country where public health officials can generally be trusted as far as i know you know i'm not fact checking everything that comes out of their mouths but you know i i do trust the 
the government to have a pretty good idea of what's going on, what we should do. And I've, I've followed those rules as much as I could. And that's, that's as far as it goes. Okay. Thanks. That's interesting. Um, I, I was in the camp early of this, this doesn't make a lot of sense. This recommendation, we know that people in many countries dealing with respiratory illness outbreaks have worn masks for years and have been told to as, as good practice started wearing cloth masks when I got them and pretty much stuck with them. And I've recently been, been dabbling in double masking, which is maybe a topic we can revisit in a future episode. But I, I continue to just be baffled by the recommendations and the, the, the different types of masks for different scenarios that people are suggesting and, and wish things were much simpler and, uh, and really researched it recently for this episode and for myself. And I still find it all pretty confusing and muddled. Yeah. And that's really a shame. I mean, it, and one thing that's, I think we've discussed this on previous episodes that come, it comes up a lot is public health messaging on the ventilation is so lacking that there will be these detailed suggestions about masks in a context where nothing is said about ensuring better ventilation. I mean, there are mask shortages, but there aren't humidifier shortages or air purifier shortages. Um, people are keeping windows closed where they don't have to. I mean, I think people are getting more knowledgeable about that, but again, all this stuff, all this stuff is trade-offs. And if you are trying to send a message to a population or even just spread better practices among your friends, there's a limited amount of attention you can count on. So are you going to give a 10 point suggestion of different mask use, or are you going to say five things about masks and one thing about ventilation? I mean, to me, that's a pretty good test of whether someone is some combination of knowledgeable and serious about stopping this and not just focused on whatever thing that they've decided is important today or whatever thing they've been hearing the most about lately. Ventilation is, as as you were saying, Carl, about spending more on, on tests, we've been talking about spending more on masks. Ventilation is really sort of the the unheralded hero of the pandemic, the, the, the thing that people should be doing, they should be uh, celebrated for doing more of or accomplishing more of, uh, even though it usually gets forgotten. So... Carl, let me give you one more shot since I've just said a whole bunch more things as I'm moving towards wrapping up the episode. Any final thoughts before we sign off here? No, lots of material for future episodes. As is always the case. Yes, we have we have all these Google Docs for future episodes. So be warned, if you're sick of this show, you will not escape us anytime soon. Uh, and listening is mandatory. That's something we haven't talked about so much, but it is it is required as a part of good citizenship. So thanks everyone for joining. And we say that even though it is mandatory. Um, thank you, Carl, for being part of this today. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, as I've said before, you can listen to all past episodes, all nine of them before this one on dangerousexponents.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tennis Abstract, Carl on Twitter with mask, at least until the shame overwhelms him at Carl Bialik. Um, please do tell us what you think. Uh, tell us why we're wrong or what else we should be reading, what else we should be talking about. We would love to hear more from you. It does feel a little bit like we are recording into the void sometimes, even when we know that there are people out there listening. So we'd love to hear from you. Um, we'll see you next week with another episode. So thanks for listening. <laughs>